Good morning, family. It's good to see everyone here. So glad we can be together today to worship together. We are continuing our series through the book of Galatians. We'll be in Galatians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, uh, you can. Uh, as you guys, most of you guys know that every time we go through the book of Bible, we offer these uh, journals out in the lobby, and so this is a good, convenient place to gather all your notes together if you are a note taker. If you're not a note taker, that's okay. I use them to help prep for sermons, but there's a great tool, and so we like to provide those for everyone uh, if you're so inclined, and you can pick one of those up. Uh, we ask $5, but if you don't have $5, don't worry about it. We don't make a big deal. No one's watching, so. But it's so great to see everyone. So great to be here with uh, our church family as we dive into the Word. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are, for your love, for your kindness, for your grace that you lavish upon us. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us through your Word, that we can know you and respond to you. Lord, I pray for this time as we gather together as your people and open up your word that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds that we may see you, that we may see your love, we may, we may see the salvation you offer to us through Jesus Christ, that we may see the truth of who he is and how we should respond to him. Lord, I pray for this study as we go through Galatians chapter 2 that you bring it to life in our minds and hearts. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a question that looms over all of existence. It's a question that actually has been looming since the beginning, ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they went their own way. There's a question that looms over all of humanity. How can sinful humans be made right with a holy God? When we read the Bible, we see this question coming up again and again that humanity on their own, on our own, cannot enter into the holy God's presence. And we see how God moves and He pursues us and He sets up these ways in which we can relate to Him, but they're always through intermediaries. They're always kind of kept a little way that we really cannot be how we used to be. We really cannot have that relationship we were made to have. That Adam and Eve, our humanity, was created to have this relationship to be with God, to, to be fulfilled by that relationship with God. And Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, but yet because of their sin, now we cannot have that same relationship. And the question looms, how can sinful humanity get that back? How can we have a relationship with our holy God? We see God pursue us, and it's by His grace that He allows us to have that relationship. And we see that fulfillment of that eventually comes through Jesus Christ as He brings His people back to Himself. These promises that He has moved throughout the Bible being fulfilled in Him. But as we read through the New Testament, we see the truth that we are prone to forget that. We're prone to forget about how he brings us back. And so when we read Galatians, we see that being a big part of this book. Paul reminding people about how we can stand before our holy God. 
And that's what we see in Galatians chapter 2 as he is continuing his argument through the whole book of Galatians. We see him continuing this and kind of summing up how can humanity be brought before God? How can we stand? How can we be made right before our holy God? And he brings us to that point that it's only in Christ that we can. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2. If not, don't worry. It'll be on the screen behind me. And we're actually going to read the whole chapter 2. And we're going to see... Paul's argument through this chapter, and it starts like this. Paul is talking about his own kind of personal experience and his conversion, and he's picking up the story from where he left off uh, at the end of chapter 1. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barabbas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seemed to be influential, what they are, were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we could go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barabbas was, uh, Barnabas I'm sorry, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have belief in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's a large segment of Scripture there in chapter 2. But I'll just sum it up how Paul brings it to a sum there in verse 16, that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. 
Paul's answering that question that looms over the whole of humanity. How can we, who are sinful, be made right before God? He says it's only through faith in Jesus Christ. That is how we can actually enter the presence of our holy God because He, Christ, lived for us and died for us, doing what we could not do, taking our sin upon Himself, giving us His righteousness, so now, now we could be justified, made right, so that when we stand before our holy God, God no longer sees us as sinners. He sees us through Christ, seeing us as his sons and daughters, being sinless because Christ was sinless, being righteous because Christ was righteous. That's how we are made right before a holy God. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. So we should stand on the solid rock of Christ. Then when we think about our relationship with God, when we think about how we navigate through this world or how God looks upon us, we go back to this monumental truth. It's not from our own doing. It's not from following the law. It's not from earning some brownie points. No, it's through Jesus Christ and Him alone that we can stand before our holy God and we can do it confidently because Christ did it all for us that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. When I read this, second, this, uh, this part of uh, Scripture in Galatians chapter 2, I would argue, really, that we have to go a little bit further into it to get to the heart of the matter, and that is in verse 16 where Paul says and argues that we are justified by belief, by faith, by trust, in Jesus Christ, and not by anything else. But we have to ask ourselves, what does he mean when he says that we are justified? What does he mean when he uses that term? And I think it can get confusing because nowadays we, we use that a lot. We justify things in our lives to kind of excuse them or to get us off the hook. If you have kids, you see this all the time when you're like, why did you hit your sister? And the kid justifies their behavior because she made a face at me. Or maybe when someone is, when the when kid, or maybe even ourselves, we're kind of snap back at someone and they're like, hey, what's going on? We seek to justify our behavior by saying, you made me mad. We're seeking to justify it. Or maybe when that cop stopped you speeding to church, you say, hey, I didn't see the sign. We're seeking to justify it when we maybe are being held accountable by friends, we say, everyone else is doing it. We're seeking to justify our behavior. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about justify in this legal sense. That when someone is declared not guilty of a crime, they have been justified from that crime. They have been made right. They have, they have a legal standing of being innocent, declared innocent. And that's really the language that Paul is using here. Is that when someone believes in Jesus Christ, when they know who Christ is, they now stand made right, declared innocent in Christ before our holy God. That he's pulling up these scenes of this cosmic um, um, uh, courtroom where we are now going to stand before the righteous judge, and how can we do that? We know our insides. We know what we do. We know our thoughts. We know how we treat people. How could we possibly do that and not fear and tremble and quake? We only can do that because we believe in Jesus Christ, and so when we stand before the righteous judge, we stand in Christ. 
and so are declared innocent, declared right, made right as he declares us to be that. When I, re- when I was reading through what it means to be justified, one commentary offered this um, definition of justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares sinners righteous through, solely through faith in Jesus Christ. That is, this is a, a gracious act that he bestows upon us through grace based on our faith in Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing because that is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of that good news that's declared to us that we can be made right to our holy God. That the relationship we were designed for that's in our DNA can be ours through faith in Jesus Christ. That Christ is all we need. Paul really doubles down again and again through the Scriptures that Christ is all we need. We have a tendency to look other places, to ourselves, to things we do, to the outside world, and he says, no, it's Christ and Christ alone that we need. I think we look other places because this is so hard to accept sometimes for many reasons and maybe, maybe even more reasons than I can probably, probably even think about, but there's so many reasons that make this hard to accept. First, because I think it's too good to be true. When I read this, I think this looks too good to be true. There has to be a catch. There has to be something else to this. It just seems so foreign to the ways of the world because the way we grow up, the way we even breathe in this world is that we do and we get. We perform and we get good grades. We perform, we get a salary. That's the ways of the world. And this comes in and says, no, it's not about what you do, but it's about who you trust in. And it seems too good to be true. All we have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ, and that's it? And that's how we're made right? It seems too good to be true. It's so different from what, how we operate. And it seems too good to be true because we look inside, or at least I do, on those, those nights when you're laying awake and you can't sleep and start having those, re, those reels replay about how you were an idiot through the day. Maybe it's just me. But, you know, you're thinking about your life and you realize, how can God love me? Not just a sinner, but a screw-up. A person that can't get things right. How could he possibly do that? And so doubt creeps in, and Paul is reassuring us again and again, this is the truth because he knows how we drift and we doubt it because it's so sweet, this gospel, this good news about how he saves us. And maybe it's hard to believe because also human pride steps in. And we want to stand before our holy God and present something to him and say, look at what I have done. Aren't I one of your best? Give me a good boy, would you? Look at what I have achieved. We can think and say, well, I really want to bring something to the table before our holy God. And I love how one of the greatest American theologians, Jonathan Edwards, said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Because that's true, because we come, we can't bring anything. Because Christ has done it all. And so we have faith in him. We are justified by faith in Christ 
alone. So we need to know what faith is. Faith is this, this belief in who he is. I would describe it as this coming with empty hands because we have trust, total trust in who Christ is and we know he has done it all so we know we don't have to bring anything to our holy God. Some people can break down faith and say, you know, it has kind of these three parts. You have to have knowledge, assent, and trust. This idea that we have knowledge, we have to actually know who Christ is, what he has done for us. We have to have this assent. We actually believe, we say, hey, I agree that he has done this for us. I agree who he is, that he is the Son of God. I agree that he did die for us. We have assent, and, but then we have trust that we actually place our whole life in his hands. We trust him to be true. We trust him to have achieved salvation. We trust him, and that is the essence of saving faith is when we trust God and come to God before open hands, standing in Christ, in Christ alone. But we got to resist this temptation because we like to smuggle things into faith. Add on a little bit. Say faith in Christ plus something else. And we try to smuggle stuff in there. And Paul is saying, no, have faith in Christ and stand in that truth and be justified before our holy God and him and him alone. And those examples that he used through his life provide us examples of how people try to smuggle something in or to get it kind of twisted. So the first part of uh, Genesis chapter 2, Paul, uh, Paul is uh, talking about how he came to Jerusalem. And he, and he, you know, there's a debate about whether this was the Jerusalem council or sometime before. But he comes to Jerusalem and he brings one of the converts from, from the, the empire, Titus. And he's a Greek and he, he's not forced to be circumcised. He's not forced to follow the law. And so they're, they're arguing for the, um, the, the fact that we're saved by grace and grace alone. But there's this other party, this group of believers that Paul is talking about through Galatians again and again, the circumcision party. The, the Judaizers that following along and they're de- declaring something different than Paul. They're saying, hey, to be made right with God, you first have to follow the law. You first have to become Jewish. You have to be circumcised. You have to do these things and then you can become a Christian and be made right before God. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the truth. That that is actually perverting it. That's adding something to the gospel that actually subtracts the power from the gospel because you're saying that you have to achieve, you have to become something before Christ accepts you. And he says, no, the truth is that Christ accepts you as a sinner, as someone who has done nothing, who has done earned nothing to earn anything. He accepts you and brings you before God if you have faith in him. And so Paul is saying we have to be wary of these Judaizers, the circumcision party. Why? Because they're practicing what we would call legalism. This idea that through our own power, by our own rules, we can somehow earn something before our holy God. And that is not how it works. Because we can't. There is no one who can practice the law and do good enough to satisfy the demands and the standards of God because it is perfection. Everyone would fail. We all fail. Everyone would mess up. Everyone falls short. As Paul reminds us again and again through this, that the only hope is to approach God through faith in Jesus Christ who did it perfectly for us as the God-man and saved us. He speaks kind of really, Paul really speaks kind of harshly towards this concept that the Judaizers are bringing in. He calls it slavery. 
They're trying to make us slaves again to the law. That these people wanted to enslave you to follow this. And when you follow his train of logic, it makes sense because it is slavery. Because once we think we can earn or achieve, we get on that treadmill and we start working and we become slaves to that concept that we can never reach. We become slaves because it's an obligation, it's a duty. Do this. We're working to please and satisfy and complete something that we can never do and we will never get free of it on our own because we think we can somehow achieve a relationship with our holy God based on what we do. And Paul says that is slavery, whereas in Christ, by faith in Christ, we have freedom. Freedom to get off that treadmill. Freedom to now follow Christ with all of our life because he has done everything for us. But this is not just an example that happened back then when Paul was writing the letter to the Galatians. We do it all the time. In our minds, we think we are doing something, achieving something before God, and if we don't watch itself, us here, church people, do this the worst. It's weird because we take good things, like Bible reading, praying, service, loving people, all good things, and you should do them, and you should do them more. But we take them and we twist them. And we somehow feel like because I read my Bible today, God, you have to be more happy with me than you were before. We take them and we twist them. And we say, God, man, I am diligent. I bring my money to the church and I, I supply uh, finances for missionaries. Therefore, God, you have to bless me, right? That's how it works. This is a, this is a contract, right? We twist it and we get it wrong and we think somehow we are achieving for us something that we're not. We somehow are earning our way to stand before God. It's weird because these are all good things. And I would argue they're all things that come from the new life we have in Christ. That they're the natural outworkings that once we have faith in Christ and we're made new in Christ, these things should be there and they should be growing. But they're the natural outwork of something, not what gets us that life in Christ. And I'll admit that I made a mistake this week and I picked up um, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. If you don't know Charles Spurgeon, he's a preacher from the 1800s. He was a prince of preachers. Um, and I picked up a sermon about this. And so I just have to do some quotes by Charles Spurgeon. Because he encompasses it so well. He says this, talking about the same concept, how we smuggle in these works into our faith. And he says, um, <clears throat> You say, I should go to heaven, you say. Do I not keep Good Friday and Christmas Day? Am I not a better man than those dissenters? I'm a most extraordinary man. Do I not say more prayers than anyone? You'll be a long while going on that treadmill before you get an inch higher. That is not the way to get to the stars. One says, I will go and study the Bible and believe right dark doctrine. And I have no doubt that by believing right darkness, dark doctrine, I shall be saved. Indeed, you will not. You can no more be saved by believing right doctrine than by doing right actions. I love that because he just encompasses it. We can't get one more inch closer to God on that treadmill of trying to earn our way. Paul argues through this instance in his life that he even brings Titus 
And the whole church agreed. He does not need to be circumcised. He's a believer. He shares in the Spirit. The church agreed, yes, go to the Gentiles and preach this gospel that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. And then he has this other story that he employs showing another example about how people get it twisted. And he has this example of, of Cephas, or Peter, the same person, how he came to Antioch, and Peter comes to Antioch, and he's eating with Gentiles, and all of a sudden some Jews sent by James, who are part of the circumcision party, so these are the people who are saying, you must become a Jew first, follow these laws, become a Christian. They come up, and Peter gets scared, and he backs off from eating with Gentiles. He actually gets scared because he doesn't want to rock the boat. He gets scared because he doesn't want what they think about him to get back to maybe to other people. And so he's actually distorting the truth of the gospel and says, okay, maybe it's true. We should follow the laws. And Paul says, you are a hypocrite. You know the truth, but yet you distort it and live some other way. And because of that, people are being led astray. Even Barnabas is being led astray. And why is that dangerous? Because you're now, by the way you're living, people are now going to start thinking, I have to follow these rules to get right before God before I can have a relationship with him. And Paul says, no, you're perverting it. In fact, we preserve, we fought against these people so we can preserve the gospel so that people can believe. And that is the danger of hypocrisy, that these people are going to live differently than what they know is true, and so give license for people to be led astray thinking that somehow they can earn their salvation, somehow they can earn their place before God. When we read this, and we see that very real, probably, pressure that Peter was feeling, we have to ask ourselves, do we feel that pressure as well to compromise? Do we feel that pressure maybe not to stand on the truth? Stand on the truth of gospel? That when people start speaking in our workplaces, or when people start talking wherever we are, hanging out, do we feel that pressure maybe to back up like Peter did and not stand for the truth and so people can be led astray? It's a hard question to ask, but the, again, he's using this example of Peter to declare the truth that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. We don't need anything else. I love this because in verse 17, uh, 17, really addresses maybe the main argument people have against this. Because they argue and they say, wait, what, 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 what about this, this idea of being justified by, Christ, by faith in Christ alone? What about, this, what about when people continue in sin? What about when people don't, don't live that new life they're supposed to live? Doesn't this give license to, to, to sin? And, and Paul replies this, certainly not. And he, he's making this case that that we people might argue that this makes Christ a servant of sin because if people are just saved by faith and they continue to live how they want, then doesn't that make him a servant of sin? And Paul says, certainly not. And he's making the case that if in my, after my justification, if I still sin, if I still fall short, it's not any fault of Christ, but it's only my own fault. I have only myself to blame. That he can't blame Christ because of it. That when people make that argument, he's saying, no, 
you're not truly understanding what justification means because it's not just a legal fiction. That when we stand before God and we're declared right, it's not just a legal fiction. It actually changes who we are. And so our affections are changed. Our desires are changed. And that change has to be lived out bit by bit. And so sometimes we struggle, uh, struggle and sometimes we stumble and we don't get it perfect all the time. And so when we're still struggling through that, we're not giving license to sin by someone who's trying to please God, but we have been changed and we're working to be His in all things. And again, I love how Spurgeon says it. It says there, it says another, I like that. I should go and believe in Christ and live as I like. Indeed, you will not. For if you believe in Christ, he will not let you live as your flesh liketh. By his spirit, he will constrain you to mortify his affections and lusts. If he gives you the grace to believe, to make you believe, he will give you the grace to live a holy life afterwards. If he gives you faith, he'll give you good works afterwards. The idea is that this is not just a legal fiction that when we believe in Christ by faith, we are changed. Which is what Paul says in that verse 20. Now probably many of us have learned, memorized maybe, if you memorized Scripture before. In Galatians 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That the monumental fact is that this legal declaration by God, you are made right, results in us being changed. Because when we're justified in Christ by faith, we're united to Christ by faith. By the Holy Spirit uniting us to Him. If you, ever read, if you read your New Testament, if you read your Bible, you see again and again the language that Paul uses. And you can do a little grammar study, if you people like grammar. Look at how he talks about faith in Christ, the prepositions that he uses, that we believe in Christ, we're believe, we have faith into Christ. Again and again, he uses this language that denotes this, this positional framework, that we are in Christ. We have union with Christ. That he makes clear in verse 20 that I am unified with Christ so much so that I no longer live. Why? Because when Christ was crucified, my sin, me, my old sinful nature was nailed to the cross with him. I am dead with Christ. And when he rose from the grave, I rose with Christ to new life. This is the truth of Christianity. We are united in Christ. All the blessings that Jesus has for us flow from this fact that we are with him, that we know him. We're united by faith. The Holy Spirit applies the salvation he has achieved for us to us. And so we have that because of Christ. The blessings of the Christian life are poured out because we are united with our Savior in His death, in His resurrection, that we know what awaits us because He's given us this fact. Now, does it make sense why those who are justified by grace can no longer continue to sin? Because we are made new. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone believes in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. We're made new. We want nothing more to do with our old life. We don't want to live how we once lived. 
We don't want to treat people how we once treated people. We don't want to have the same affections that we once had. We are made new, and that does not mean we don't sin. Yes, we sin, we mess up, we lose track of this, we lose sight of Christ, and we stumble, but we remember that the one who saved us by grace is continually saving us by grace, and he lifts us up, and he carries us to the finish line because he does it. That we're made new, and from that new nature that he's given us, we're united with Christ. And as Paul says, it's not, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That we're so united with Christ now as we take one step, two steps, or any other steps in, the faith, in our faith, we do it through the power of Christ who lives in you. And because we're changed, we now seek to live with him, live for him. Our whole tenor of our life has changed. We seek to follow him. We seek to be his. As we focus on him and know him, we seek to be who he has called us to be. So what does this mean for us? Well, I would say when we read this, we see what we're supposed to avoid pretty easily in the text. We avoid legalism, thinking we can do anything to earn our standing before God. We avoid hypocrisy in our way in which we live that gives license for people to continue to follow their own understanding. But I would say the main thing we see from this monumental truth is that we rest in Christ. That we can get off that treadmill thinking we can somehow earn something before God and rest in Christ. That we can rest in the truth of how He saved us. We can rest in the truth of His, his loveliness, His, his, his accomplishment of salvation for us. That we can rest in Christ and it's from that rest as we gaze upon our God, our Savior, that we can now then live the new life and serve Him in all of our life. Another quote from by Spurgeon says, The cross, which is the object of faith, is also by the power of the Holy Spirit the cause of it. Sit down and watch the dying Savior till faith springs up spontaneously in your heart. There is no place like Calvary for creating confidence. The air of that sacred hill brings faith, health to trembling faith. Many a watcher there have said, while I view thee wounded, grieving, breathless on the cursed tree, Lord, I fill my heart believing that thou suffest thus for me. I love that because it provides us that assurance that so many of us might be struggling with. Because we might believe this is true. We might intellectually hiss our head, right? Oh yes, Christ died for me. He's done everything for salvation for me. But yet when we live our life and we are confronted with ourselves, we struggle and we struggle with assurance. How could this be true? And Spurgeon, just like Paul says again, look upon Christ. Remember again what He has done. How He upon that cursed tree took your sin upon Him. That He, when He rose from that grave, provides new life for you. That if you believe in Him, if you know Him, you are united with Him in His death, 
his resurrection, and you know he will finish that work he started in you. That when we are wrestling with our assurance, the answer is look to Christ. Know him. Follow him. Love him. And as we look to Christ, he gives us the power he gives us the wherewithal and the knowledge to now follow and live out that new life. Reassuring us as we grow in that, as we grow in those good things of Bible study, of prayer, as we grow in service, as we grow in doing these good works, these reassure us is the truth of what we have in Christ, that He has saved us, that we are justified, by faith in Christ alone. Join me for prayer. Jeremy, Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for this truth that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Thank, thank you so much for this word that reminds us, that reassures us of this truth. Lord, I just ask that you continue to grow our confidence. Grow your life in us that we can understand who you are and reply, not just with lip service, but with all of us, that we can live for you and be yours. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to stand with us for this last song.